Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 208 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong, Part 3. Last episode, we left Neil shortly after he had returned from the moon. Next, Neil and his crew had to endure an 18-day quarantine to ensure that they had not picked up any infections or diseases from the moon. After the end of the quarantine, Neil and the crew were fitted across the United States and around the world as part of a 45-day, quote, giant leap, end quote, tour. Armstrong then took part in Bob Hope's 1969 USO show primarily to Vietnam. Later, from uh, October 29th to the 31st, 1969, Armstrong and the rest of the Apollo 11 astronauts visited the city of Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, where he met the Shah and the rest of the nation's royal family. In May 1970, Armstrong traveled to the Soviet Union to present a talk on the 13th Annual Conference of the International Committee on Space Research. After arriving in Leningrad, From Poland, Armstrong traveled to Moscow, where he met Premier Alexei Kosygin. While in the Soviet Union, Armstrong became the first Westerner to see the supersonic plane Tupolev Tu-144. He was also given a tour of the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center, which Armstrong described as, quote, a bit Victorian in nature. The first woman cosmonaut, Valentina Tereshkova, was Armstrong's host. At the end of the visit, Armstrong was surprised to be allowed to view the delayed video of the launch of Soyuz 9. During their time together, Tereshkova had not mentioned that her husband, Andrian Nikolaev, was on board Soyuz 9. Shortly after returning to the U.S. from his giant leap tour, 
Armstrong announced that he did not plan to fly in space again. He was then appointed as Deputy Associate Administrator for Aeronautics for the Office of Advanced Research and Technology, Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA. But Neil only served in this position for a year and resigned from it. Neil resigned from NASA as a whole in 1971. Next, Armstrong accepted a teaching position in the Department of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Cincinnati. He chose Cincinnati over other universities, including his alma mater, Purdue, because the University of Cincinnati had a small aerospace department. Neil was a little concerned that the faculty members would be annoyed that he had come straight into a professorship with only the USC master's degree. Neil began to work on that master's degree while stationed at Edwards years before, and finally completed it after Apollo 11 by presenting a report on various aspects of Apollo instead of a thesis on the simulation of hypersonic flight. The official job title he received at Cincinnati was University Professor of Aerospace Engineering. After teaching for eight years, he resigned in 1979 without explaining the reason. Armstrong served on two spaceflight accident investigations. The first was in 1970 after Apollo 13, where as part of the Edgar Courtright's panel, he produced a detailed chronology of the flight. Armstrong opposed the report's recommendation to redesign the service module's oxygen tanks, the source of the explosion. In 1986, President Reagan appointed Neil to the Rogers Commission, which investigated the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster of that year. As Vice Chairman, Armstrong was in charge of the operational side of the commission. After Armstrong retired from NASA in 1971, he acted as a spokesman for several businesses. The first company to successfully approach him was Chrysler for whom he appeared in advertisements starting in January 1979. Armstrong thought they had a strong engineering division, plus they were in financial difficulty. He later acted as a spokesman for other companies, including General Time Corporation and the Bankers Association of America. Neil only acted as a spokesman for U.S. businesses. Along with spokesman's duty, he also served on the board of directors of several companies, including Marathon Oil, Learjet, Synergy, Taft Broadcasting, United Airlines, Eaton Corporation, AIL Systems, and Thiokol. He joined Thiokol's board after he served on the Rogers Commission. The Space Shuttle Challenger was destroyed due to a problem with the Thiokol manufactured solid rocket boosters. He retired as chairman of the board of EDO Corporation in 2002. In 1985, professional expedition leader Mike Dunn organized a trip to take the then greatest explorers to the North Pole. The group included Armstrong, Edmund Hillary, Hillary's son Peter, 
Steve Fawcett, and Patrick Moreau. Neil arrived at the North Pole on April 6, 1985. Armstrong said he was curious to see what the North Pole looked like from ground level, as he had only seen it from the moon. Neil also did some TV and film work. In 2010, he voiced the character of Dr. Jack Moreau in Quantum Quest, a Cassini Space Odyssey film. This was an animated educational sci-fi adventure initiated by JPL and NASA through a grant from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Between 1991 and 93, he hosted First Flights with Neil Armstrong, an aviation history documentary on A&E. Now a word on Armstrong's personal life. Unlike former astronauts who actively sought political careers after leaving NASA, such as Senator Glenn and Representative Harrison Smith, Armstrong decided to stay away from politics. Even though he was approached by political groups from both Democrats and Republicans, Neil described his political leanings as favoring states' rights and opposing the United States acting as the world's policeman. In 1972, Armstrong was welcomed into the town of Langholm, Scotland, the traditional seat of Clan Armstrong. He was made the first freeman of the burg and happily declared the town his home. The Justice of the Peace read from an unrepealed 400-year-old law that required him to hang any Armstrong found in town. In November 1978, Armstrong was working on his farm near Lebanon, Ohio. As he jumped off of the back of his grain truck, his wedding ring got caught in the wheel, tearing off the tip of his left hand's ring finger. He collected his severed digit and packed it in ice, and surgeons attached it at the Jewish hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. In February 1991, a year after his father had died and nine months after the death of his mother, he suffered a mild heart attack while skiing with friends at Aspen, Colorado. Armstrong's first wife, Janet, divorced him in 1994 after 38 years of marriage. He had met his second wife, Carol Knight, in 1992 at a golf tournament where they were seated together at a breakfast table. Carol said little to Armstrong, but two weeks later she received a call from him asking what she was doing. She replied she was cutting down a cherry tree. Thirty-five minutes later, Armstrong was at her house to help out. They were married on June 12, 1994 in Ohio. Armstrong is generally referred to as a reluctant American hero. John Glenn recalled Armstrong's legendary humility in a CNN interview. Quote, He didn't feel that he should be out huckstering himself. He was a humble person and that's the way he remained after his lunar flight as well as before. After 1994, Armstrong refused all requests for autographs, 
because he found that his signed items were selling for large amounts of money and many forgeries were in circulation. Any requests that were sent to him received a form letter in reply saying that he had stopped signing. Although his no-autograph policy was well known, author Andrew Smith observed people at the 2002 Reno Air Races still trying to get signatures, with one person even claiming, quote, If you shove something close enough in front of his face, he'll sign it. End quote. He also stopped sending out congratulatory letters to new Eagle Scouts because he believed these letters should come from people who know the Scouts personally. Use of Armstrong's name, image, and famous quote caused him problems over the years. The MTV network wanted to use his quote for its now famous identity depicting the Apollo 11 landing when MTV began in 1981, but Armstrong refused. Armstrong sued Hallmark Cards in 1994 after they used his name and a recording of the One Small Step quote in a Christmas ornament without permission. The lawsuit was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money which Armstrong donated to Purdue. In May 2005, Armstrong became involved in an unusual legal dispute with his barber of 20 years, Mark Sizemore. After cutting Armstrong's hair, Sizemore sold some of it to a collector for $3,000 without Armstrong's knowledge or permission. Armstrong threatened legal action against Sizemore unless he returned the hair or donated the proceeds to a charity of Armstrong's choosing. Sizemore was unable to retrieve the hair, so he decided to donate the proceeds to the charity of Armstrong's choice. In a 2011 interview, Armstrong was asked how he made the difficult transition from his first 40 years to his next 40 years. Here's what he said. Well, the subject matter has always been similar. I'm an engineer by nature, and uh, throughout uh, these years, I've been dealing with engineering subjects, and I always uh, feel fascinated by whatever it is we're looking into uh, from an engineering st standpoint. I have to say that now and then I miss uh, the excitement of, uh, of being in, in, the, uh, in the cockpit of an airplane and, and doing new things, but uh, I've come to uh, accept that and, uh, and found a, a lot of satisfaction in uh, solving problems uh, outside, outside of the aircraft. On August 7th, 2012, Armstrong underwent bypass surgery to relieve blocked coronary arteries. Although he was reportedly recovering well, he developed complications in the hospital and died on August 25th in Cincinnati, Ohio. After his death, Armstrong was described in a statement released by the White House as, quote, among the greatest of American heroes not just of his time, but of all time, end quote. The statement further said that Armstrong had carried the aspirations of the United States citizens and that he had delivered, quote, 
a moment of human achievement that will never be forgotten. End quote. Neil's family released a statement describing Armstrong as a, quote, reluctant American hero who had served his nation proudly as a Navy fighter pilot, test pilot, and astronaut. While we mourn the loss of a very good man, we also celebrate his remarkable life and hope that it serves as an example to young people around the world to work hard to make their dreams come true, to be willing to explore and push the limits, and to selflessly serve a cause greater than themselves. For those who may ask what they can do to honor Neil, we have a simple request. Honor his example of service, accomplishment, and modesty. And the next time you walk outside on a clear night and see the moon smiling down at you, think of Neil Armstrong and give him a wink. This prompted many responses, including the Twitter hashtag, Wink at the Moon. Armstrong's colleague on the Apollo 11 mission, Buzz Aldrin, said that he was, quote, deeply saddened by the passing. I know I am joined by millions of others in mourning the passing of a true American hero and the best pilot I ever knew. I had truly hoped that on July 20, 2019, Neil, Mike, and I would stand together to commemorate the 50th anniversary of our moon landing. Regrettably, this is not to be, end quote. Apollo 11 Command Module Pilot Michael Collins said of Armstrong, quote, He was the best, and I will miss him terribly, end quote. NASA Administrator Charles Bolden said that, quote, As long as there are history books, Neil Armstrong will be included in them. Remembered for taking humankind's first small steps on a world beyond our own. On September 13th, a memorial service was held in Armstrong's honor at the Washington National Cathedral, whose space window actually depicts the Apollo 11 mission and holds a sliver of moon rock amid its stained glass panels. In attendance at the memorial were Armstrong's Apollo 11 crewmates, Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin, Eugene Cernan, the Apollo 17 mission commander and last man to walk on the moon, and former senator and astronaut John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth. In a eulogy, Charles Bolden said, quote, Neil will always be remembered for taking humankind's first small step on a world beyond our own. But it was the courage, grace, and humility he displayed throughout this life that lifted him above the stars, end quote. Here's Gene Cernan speaking at Neil's memorial. About a special friend. When that friend is also a world icon, a national hero of unimaginable proportion, and a legend whose name will live in history long after all here today have been forgotten. A friend whose commitment and dedication to that in which he believed was absolute. A man who, when he became your friend, 
was a friend for a lifetime. Neil Armstrong grew up on a farm in middle America. And as a young boy, like most kids, he had a paper route. He cut lawns. He shoveled snow. And his fascination for model airplanes gave birth to a dream, a dream of becoming an aeronautical engineer. Neil had his first taste of flight when he was but six years old. And from that day forward, he never looked back. Although he always wanted to design and redesign airplanes to make them do what they weren't supposed to do, once he had tasted flight, Neil's eyes turned skyward, and it was there that he always longed to be. Little did Neil ever realize that his dream, his longing to soar with the eagles, would someday give him the opportunity to be the first human being to go where no human had gone before. Neil Armstrong was a sincerely humble man of impeccable integrity who reluctantly accepted his role as the first human being to walk on another world. And when he did, he became a testament, a testament to all Americans of what can be achieved through vision and dedication. But in Neil's mind, it was never about Neil. It was about you, your mothers and fathers, your grandparents, about those of a generation ago who gave Neil the opportunity to call the moon his home. But never, ever was it about Neil. Neil considered that he was just the tip of the arrow, always giving way to some 400,000 equally committed and dedicated Americans, Americans who were the strength behind the bow and always giving credit to those who just didn't know it couldn't be done. And therein lies the strength and the character of Neil Armstrong. He knew who he was, and he understood the immensity of what he had done. Yet Neil was always willing to give of himself. When Neil, Jim Lovell, and I had the opportunity to visit the trips in Iraq and Afghanistan on three separate occasions, meeting them in chow halls, control centers, yes, even armored carriers and helicopters, those enthusiastic young men and women yet to be born when Neil walked on the moon were mesmerized by his presence. In a typical Neil fashion, he would always walk in, introduce himself as if they didn't know who he was, shake each and every hand, and he'd always give them, hey, how are you guys doing? Asked one overwhelmed, inquisitive Marine, Mr. Armstrong, why are you here? Neil's thoughtful and sincerely honest reply was because you are here. 
Neil was special to these young kids and to a few old ones as well. Although deeply proud to be a naval aviator, as a civilian at the time he flew, Neil never received his astronaut wings. It was a tradition of those in the military. It was on the USS Eisenhower back in 2010 on our way to Afghanistan that Neil finally received, did receive the tribute that he deserved, his visibly, visibly moved response said it all, and I quote, I've never been more proud than when I earned my Navy wings of gold. And I've got to believe that there's a few golden eagles in the audience who will second those words. Trying to get in at Neil's inner self was always a challenge for almost anyone, maybe everyone. Asked one day by a stranger, Mr. Armstrong, how did you feel when looking for a place to land on the moon with only 15 seconds of fuel remaining? And only the way Neil could, and I know some of you have seen him this way, he put a thumb on an index finger, he'd tilt his head and sort of put his hand down there and he'd say, well, when the gauge says empty, we all know there's a gallon or two left in the tank. <laughs> now there is a man who has always been in control of his own destiny. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is vintage Neil Armstrong. Fate looked down kindly on us when she chose Neil to be the first to venture to another world and to have the opportunity to look back from space at the beauty of our own. It could have been another, but it wasn't. And it wasn't for a reason. No one, no one, but no one could have accepted the responsibility of his remarkable accomplishment with more dignity and more grace than Neil Armstrong. He embodied all that is good and all that is great about America. Neil, wherever you are up there, almost a half a century later, you have now shown once again the pathway to the stars. It's now for you a new beginning, but for us, I will promise you, it is not the end. And as you soar through the heavens beyond where even eagles dare to go, you can now finally put out your hands and touch the face of God. Farewell, my friend. You have left us far too soon. But we want you to know we do cherish the time we have had and shared together. God bless you, Neil. On September 14th, Armstrong's cremated remains were scattered in the Atlantic Ocean during a burial at sea ceremony aboard the USS Philippine Sea. 
Flags were flown at half-staff on the day of Armstrong's funeral. Neil left quite a legacy. He received many honors and awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor, the Robert H. Goddard Memorial Trophy, the Sylvanus Thayer Award, the Collier Trophy from the National Aeronautics Association, and the Congressional Gold Medal. I have a clip from Neil's acceptance speech for the Congressional Gold Medal. The speech was made in the rotunda of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. We gather in this remarkable monument to American history, this room connecting the houses of Congress, this room where ideological differences fade in the presence of the overpowering force of pride in what we do and what Americans have achieved. It's a privilege to be in this rotunda. High above us, just below the windows, stretches a frieze with 19 panels depicting important events in American history. The most recent of them, number 19, just above me here, depicts the first successful flight of a man in a powered aircraft by the Brothers Wright 108 years ago. The depiction, in addition to the craft and the responsible individuals, includes an American bald eagle carrying an olive branch. Wilbur and Orville Wright were the 45th recipients of the Congressional Gold Medal and the first for achievements in the world of flight. Subsequently, Congressional gold medals have been presented nine times for aviation and rocketry achievements. Today, for the first time, they are being given for achievements in spaceflight. In an appropriate coincidence, Apollo 11's mission emblem and crew patch also featured an American bald eagle carrying an olive branch. The Apollo 11 crew is honored to receive the Congressional Gold Medal and accept on behalf of our fellow Apollo teammates, all those who played a role in expanding the human presence outward from Earth, and all those who played a role in expanding human knowledge of the solar system and beyond. We thank the Congress very much. Continuing with Neil Armstrong's legacy, Neil had some space landmarks named after him. The lunar crater Armstrong, which is 31 miles 
from the Apollo 11 landing site and the asteroid 6469 Armstrong are both named in his honor. Armstrong was also inducted into the Aerospace Walk of Fame, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, and the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame. Armstrong and his Apollo 11 crewmates were the 1999 recipients of the Langley Gold Medal from the Smithsonian Institution. Throughout the United States, there are more than a dozen elementary, middle, and high schools named in his honor, and many places around the world have streets, buildings, schools, and other places named for Armstrong. In 1969, folk songwriter and singer John Stewart recorded Armstrong, a tribute to Armstrong and his first steps on the moon. Purdue University announced in October 2004 that its new engineering building would be named Neil Armstrong Hall of Engineering in his honor. The Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Armstrong's hometown of Wapakoneta, Ohio, and the airport in New Knoxville, where he took his first flying lessons when he was 15, were named after him. Armstrong's authorized biography, First Man, The Life of Neil Armstrong, was published in 2005, and in 2010, a Space Foundation survey indicated that Armstrong was ranked as the number one most popular space hero. And in 2013, Flying Magazine ranked him as number one on its list of the 51 heroes of aviation. In September of 2012, the U.S. Navy announced that the first Armstrong-class vessel was named Research Vehicle Neil Armstrong. The ship was delivered to the Navy on September 23, 2015. The ship is a modern oceanographic research platform capable of supporting a wide range of oceanographic research activities conducted by academic groups. And in 2013, the Space Foundation named Neil Armstrong as a recipient of the James E. Hill Lifetime Space Achievement Award. Now, in closing, I have a clip of Neil speaking in 2011 about his goal in life. I think he achieved it. Here's the clip. Let me back up a little bit to the, the Apollo goal, which you all talked about earlier in, in the day and so on. The nice thing about that goal was that it was so simple and understandable. Oh. It go to send a man to the moon, return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. I mean, everything you needed to know was oh. there. And it's, it, I think it's a great advantage when goals can be stated in such a way that they're not ambiguous and you know exactly what it is you're trying to do. Uh, and that was a model for me. I've never been as good at doing that for myself as uh, Jack Kennedy did for, for our program, but um, the important thing to me, and I, I think probably to many here, is that you want to make a mark, you'd like to be 
a little better than when you came. That's my goal. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I want to say thanks for listening to episode 208 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong, Part 3. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that, and as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my satellite donors. These donors have donated for four years in a row, and they get a satellite emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thanks, satellite donors, for your continued support. I really enjoy giving out these longevity emojis, like the coveted rocket emoji and the treasured moon emoji, and now the sought-after satellite emoji. (laughs) I enjoy giving those out. I had uh, several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give credit to Evo TV in Australia, Several of those clips came from an interview of Neil in 2011. Well, I believe Neil did accomplish his goals. He made his mark and left the world a little bit better. Isn't it refreshing to see a humble man receive such recognition? I think so. What did you think about Neil's barber collecting his hair and selling it. <laughs> and he got $3,000 for it. <laughs> I can't believe... I guess people collect all kinds of things. I thought Neil handled it pretty well when the barber had to donate the money to Neil's favorite charity or be sued. <laughs> you know, but really, seriously, it would have been difficult for Neil with, with people literally wanting a piece of him. That had to be tough to bear for so long. You know, I'm sure he would get tired of that after a while, but, you know, he was the first on the moon. So sometimes stuff like that comes with the territory. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We had two donations to support the podcast this week. Adrian Rogers from the U.K., Donated at the Orion level. Thank you very much, Adrian. I sincerely appreciate it. And Anthony B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. That brings the total patrons to 111. That is 39 short of the goal of 150 that we want to reach by the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 163 with a goal of reaching 300. So we've got a lot of work to do there. For those of you 
who are enjoying the content I provide and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. Also, keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You could make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 donation per month, like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page, and we will certainly appreciate that. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com, based on their donation level. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. We have reached the end of content for this episode, and you are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. I saved the best part of my Kennedy Space Center visit for last. If you're interested, stick around. If not, have a good week. Thanks for sticking with me, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, I want to cover the training required for this first moon landing mission. And then after that, we will get to the launch. I don't want to rush things on Apollo 11, as you may have noticed. (laughs) All right. The personal news, the trip stuff. I've saved this part to last because I thought it was the best. And there's a story that comes with that. While I was in Florida, totally unexpected, out of the blue, the associate director of Kennedy Space Center, Mr. Kelvin Manning, contacted me to see if I wanted to come over to the Space Center and get a behind-the-scenes tour. Well, you can pretty much guess what I said to that. Absolutely, yes, I want to come. Well, I was on cloud nine after that email. (laughs) Anyway, Mr. Manning told me he found my website and podcast while researching info for the new Apollo 1 tribute at the Saturn V Center. So that was nice to hear. So finally, when the day arrived, it was April 21st, Mrs. SRH and I proceeded to the badging office at uh, the Kennedy Space Center. We had to bring two forms of identification with us. Just so you're not confused, I'm not talking about the visitor center that I covered last week. This is to get behind the fences to where the work is being done. Anyway, they gave us our badges, which were pretty nice. It was laminated and had our pictures and the title of the podcast and the number they assigned us. Mr. Manning arrived shortly thereafter, and we got into his car and began our tour. First, we went to the Orion Operations and Checkout Building. Everyone had to turn in their cell phone before we could get in because no picture-taking was allowed. There, we met Mr. Wilson. I believe he is the chief engineer of the building there. He gave a tour for us of the facility, and he showed us the Orion test vehicle and the Orion capsule that will be flown next. They had several test stations set up, and we got to see the altitude test chamber. 
and Mr. Wilson gave us an excellent tour and answered a bunch of questions. I was awestruck most of the time. Actually, when I walked in, I got goosebumps. And my confidence now has grown quite a bit seeing what I saw there. I'm getting to the point where I really believe we're going to continue with this Orion program and make the launch maybe by July of 2019, something like that. As long as it remains funded, and you know how that is. Everything depends upon funding. Well, I could have stayed and talked with Mr. Wilson for several hours, but we had to keep moving to get everything covered. The next stop was the Vehicle Assembly Building, the largest by-volume building at Kennedy Space Center, and at one time the largest in the world. There was room enough to house four Saturn Vs in there, if it was ever needed. It was also used to assemble the Space Shuttle, and it will be used with the SLS. Just as I entered the building, I remembered the KSC Visitors bus tour I had taken a few weeks ago. The guide told us that no one gets to go inside the Vehicle Assembly Building unless they are a senator that is bringing money to the Kennedy Space Center. (laughs) Now, I I think she was joking about that, but that's what she said. And uh, here we were actually walking inside of it. The building was just massively overwhelming. It's 526 feet tall, 716 feet long, and it covers eight acres and encloses 129,428,000 cubic feet of space. There are four entries to the bays located inside the building. These are the four largest doors in the world. Each door is 456 feet high and takes 45 minutes to completely open or close. Mr. Manning showed us a wall that was a tribute to the shuttle. Everyone who worked on the shuttle got to sign their name on that wall. We walked around a little bit, took some pictures, And I kept saying, I can't believe I'm in here. (laughs) The next stop was the Launch Control Center building, which was walking distance from the VAB, but we took the car to uh, pass through security. We visited one of the control rooms that was no longer in use, but it looked set up and pretty much ready to go. Now, this building was available to the regular tour as well, and I recommend you going on that tour when you visit Kennedy Space Center, bus tour. Okay, but we went a little beyond what we could see on the bus tour. On the ground floor, there is a wall that has plaques for every shuttle mission. And on one of the upper floors, there's a long hallway that is decorated by artwork crafted from the children whose parent was on the shuttle being launched into space. So there's quite a bit of artwork up on that hall. Next, we toured the launch pads and 
Mr. Manning also showed us the beach house the astronauts used to use. Unfortunately, a hurricane had damaged it, and it was in the process of being renovated, but I had not seen that before. After that, Mr. Manning took us to the uh, Kennedy Space Center headquarters building. Then he gave us a tour of the top floor. We visited the director's office, that is, Mr. Bob Cabana. Unfortunately, he was traveling, and we did not get to meet him. But we did meet his secretary, and she told us she had been the secretary of the director of Kennedy Space Center ever since Kurt Debus was there. And that's quite a while. I bet she could really tell some good stories. Mr. Manning then showed us his very nice corner office on the fourth floor. And as we were leaving, we were allowed to buy some souvenirs at the employee store. We got some nice things that were significantly discounted from the visitor center. <laughs> Next, Mr. Manning kindly dropped us off at the badge office and we left the Kennedy Space Center. Since we were celebrating one of the best days of my life, we went out to eat at the uh, Dixie Crossroads in Titusville, a location where astronauts have been known to frequent. I'd really like to thank the Associate Director, Mr. Kelvin Manning, for spending the afternoon with us and giving us a fantastic behind-the-scenes look at the Kennedy Space Center. I am eternally grateful. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. Hope to have episode 209 up by next Thursday. So long for now.